A new year and new beginnings. Don't I sound optimistic? Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com. And Jeremy, of course, is always at houstonchronicle.com. He actually lives there. There's never a day when a story from him isn't there. Uh, and he's also, of course, at expressnews.com. I missed you, Jeremy. Did you miss me? I know. It's been a long, arduous you know, holiday break. <laughs> Let's get this yeah. thing going. Maya, again. did you miss did did you miss the two of us, Maya? So much. So dearly. No, so dearly. Yeah, right. Well, I know, here's who I really missed. You. I missed you, dear listener. Can I wrap you in a big, warm audio bear hug right now? Turn your turn your speakers up or turn your earbuds up because I'm just gonna give you a big Squeeze like that. Wasn't that sweet? Well, we missed you very much. Now, the new year brings new beginnings. And that can be in your personal life. That can be in business. And of course, it can be in politics. Right, Jeremy? And it's always positive, right? Yes, of course. No, 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 no. The answer is no. In fact, in in Washington, and we'll get to what's happening with the Texas legislature soon, but in Washington, it was like people showed up and immediately started giving each other the finger, Right. All this fighting for a week for something that should just happen on one day. Usually when they elect the speaker, uh, either in Washington or in Texas, uh, it's just almost a formality, right? They know who the person's going to be. Uh, it's the either the leader of the Republicans or the leaders of the leader of the Democrats, whichever side is in the majority, because they worked to build to the majority, uh, but not this time around. Uh, and some folks from Texas had key roles in that. Let's let's recap some of this. And I saw you were tweeting furiously the last few days, Jeremy, keeping track of all of it. And we'll get into the details. Um, but after all the fighting and the bickering and bitching and almost coming to, almost coming to blows on the floor of the U.S. House at certain points, so, you know, some of the members were so so worked up. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, uh, and, and what was this? The twelfth, uh, the fourteenth, thirteenth, fourteenth ballot. I think we made it to fifteen. They didn't go to fifteen. Fifteen did was our number 15. that we finally hit. I lost track. It was so exciting that I, I dozed off at one point. Fifteen ballots, uh, and here you have Speaker McCarthy trying to strike sort of a bipartisan tone at the beginning of his victory speech. You know, if a son of a fireman and a grandchild of immigrants can rise to the highest position in the most important legislative body in our country, and if my colleague, Hakeem Jeffries, with his life story, can rise to lead his party, then opportunity and democracy still thrive in America. But let's not get too bipartisan with it. Speaking to reporters, McCarthy thanked, of all people, former President Trump, who we know uh, in real time was lobbying the members about this, right, Jeremy, to to go ahead and vote for McCarthy, even though he's considered the establishment of the Republican Party. A lot of interesting uh, alliances here in this whole deal. And this is what McCarthy said to reporters. He, he said, look, make no mistake, Trump was key in making this happen. I don't think you should anybody should doubt his influence. He was with me from the beginning. Somebody wrote the doubt of whether he was there, and he was all in. He would call me and he would call others. And uh, he really was, I was just talking to him tonight, um, helping get those final votes. And what he's really saying, really, for the party and the country, that we have to come together. We have to focus on the economy. We've got to focus, make our borders secure. We've got to do so much work to do, and he was a great influence to make that all happen. So. Thank you, President Trump. Now, Texas members of the House who were key in this included uh, Representative Chip Roy uh, from here in the Austin area. His uh, district, of course, uh, is a little bit different after redistricting, but they would say he's, quote, Austin area uh, Republican. Um, and he and uh, a Houston area congressman. Dan Crenshaw, uh, were at one point very much in opposition to each other. I think there's going to be some hard feelings because of the way this all went down and not just between those two guys, of course. Um, but what was it that Chip Roy wanted? I mean, he, he ended up voting for McCarthy, right, eventually, along with um, some of these other folks who were said to be holdouts, even though some of the holdouts just voted present when the whole thing was over. And that led to some other drama as well. But here's Chip Roy on CNN. And I got to tell you, Jeremy. He's gotten really good at his rhetoric. You can tell he went to the Ted Cruz School of Politics. As you know, he was the chief of staff to Cruz uh, at one point when uh, Cruz originally became a senator. Uh, well, here's Roy talking to Jake Tapper. And Tapper, 
bless his heart. He, 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 he makes it sound like Roy is just in this because of, uh, you know, pure principle. Putting aside personalities, let's just take that out of it and just saying what would get me to yes is I need to make sure that the rules committee is structured in such a way that those of us who are what I would call fiscal conservatives who want to stop the sort of train of the swamp, right? The power brokers, the defense industrial complex, if you will, plus the non-defense discretionary, uh, you know, uh, folks on the other side of the aisle who want to spend more money, they all come together, as you know, you follow this town closely. We just saw it happen with the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill. Without debating the merits of any particular substance in the bill, we can't keep doing that. It was a 10% increase in defense, a 6% increase in non-defense discretionary, $45 billion for Ukraine, $41 billion for emergency spending. None of that extra spending was paid for. So when are we going to stop that? So we can't stop that if we don't have the tools in the Rules Committee to stop it. I'd love to have open debate. I'd love to have more amendments. With the 72-hour rule you were just talking about, that's all good stuff. But i got to take issue with one thing that Jamie talked about just a minute ago. I wish she was still on because I don't want to talk about her in the third person. But she said that we were asking for things for personal handouts, spots on committees. Well, she wasn't that talking about you. She wasn't. We, we were very clear to distinguish you from others. We, we talked about how your opposition was based in principle having to do with rules. We were, we were talking more about uh, uh, the meeting between uh, McCarthy and Gates, Boebert, well, and, and, and but Perry. If, but if I might offer a defense of them, what was offered, or at least meant to be offered, was a, re a response to the request from Kevin, hey, we need actual names to know what you want on certain committees. So for example, we put my name on the Rules Committee. Jake, I don't want to be on the Rules Committee if I don't have to be because you got to fly up on Sunday and I want to be with my family on Sunday night in Texas. Let me slow down a little bit. He's very good at talking really fast and getting a lot in real fast. Let me slow down a little bit. What he was saying is that when the holdouts, including uh, he himself, Chip Roy, when they were asked by McCarthy, what is it y'all want? One of their answers was we want you know, specific members to be on committees and on, for, on the very powerful Rules Committee, the name that the holdouts put down was Chip Roy, and he was cool with that. Now, he's he's basically trying to have it both ways. He's trying to say, hey, look, and this is a masterful uh, uh, version of having it both ways. He's saying that, yeah, we asked for me to be on the powerful rules committee, but I don't really want to be on the, the powerful rules committee. Why would y'all think that, it, that I want that? All we did was put my name down for it. Uh, Jeremy, it, 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 let, me, let me put it this way. These folks, including Roy, Matt Gates, Bobert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, uh, you know, for, you know, for most of this has been Team McCarthy. That was interesting. She and uh, Donald Trump apparently were wrangling people, uh, you know, members of the floor, uh, members uh, of the House on the floor, trying to get them to, uh, to vote for McCarthy. Uh, but for all these people who have railed forever against the Washington swamp, and they talk about the Austin swamp, too, that the people who are always bitching about the swamp creatures, I'm trying to think what could be more swampy than asking for specific committee assignments and for specific pieces of legislation to be brought to the floor of the House in exchange for and a stand in for the words in exchange for is quid pro quo in exchange for your vote for speaker. That's remarkable to me. Well, and in and, and all my, you know, you know, horrible times of having been a Washington, D.C. reporter, the only thing good I got out of it was a little decoder ring in which I can understand what the hell they're really saying. And what Chip Roy, you okay. know, and this whole thing about the rules committee, the reason he wants this or why they want some changes to that, they want to be able to influence like every piece of legislation that comes to the floor. They want to be able to attack amendments on it and they want to have some ability to to undercut things that are in the bill. Right now, they haven't been getting enough of that. And they want an ability to, you know, especially when they get to the, that this whole spending deal in the future. You, remember, you know, every time the, the, the country is on the brink of defaulting on its debts and stuff like that, these guys want to have more yeah. power and more say to kind of influence what that final bill looks like. And so now they're going to have an ability when this comes back around in the fall, they're going to have an ability to, you know, uh, put out some amendments and, and really control how the debate is kind of handled. And it's not just going to be the speaker forcing them to absorb a vote without them being able to put up a fight and so they're going to get a chance to vote on things like cuts to you know military spending i'm not sure how great that's going to go over in san antonio in the san antonio portion of chip roy's district you know he might want to kind of you know double check with those folks to see what they think when you know he cuts you know 10 percent of the budget for you know lackland and mm -hmm. kelly and all those other bases down there but you know that's another you know, point altogether but there's also going to be like some point where they're going to get to talk about social security and entitlement benefits and how to change those and cut those you know which i'm not again i'm not so sure that's a great strategy down 
down the road, you know, for them to kind of diving into. But these are the things they want to talk about to talk to their conservative base. And they're finally going to be able to get some of that stuff on the floor for a bigger fight because of these changes that they have forced, you know, McCarthy and the others to accept. Right. Uh, part of what you said there speaks right to what Dan Crenshaw, the uh, representative from Houston, was upset about. And, and look, when, when uh, I saw over and over again in national media reports that what McCarthy was doing was giving more concessions to these holdouts, you could think of it this way. And this is part of what you said. They're asking for more power. Right. It's, it's, not, it's they're not get it, it, it. It's real clear. It's not an amorphous thing that they're asking for. They're asking for more power. Key positions on these committees. Like you said, the rules committee, it's analogous to the uh, the calendars committee in the Texas House. They decide which order uh, that the bills come to the floor. Uh, that's extremely powerful. And which ones don't make it at all. Right. Um, and, and so what Crenshaw said on Fox News Channel was that he's not just losing patience with these folks. It's way worse than that. Oh, we ran out of patience a long time ago, but th th this is what it is. Um, this is democracy. It's messy. People disagree. Uh, but what I think voters and Americans want to see from their politicians when they disagree is disagreement in good faith. You should stand for something, right? If, if you're going to hold the line, you should stand for something. You should say, this is why I'm holding the line. But, you know, you know as well as I do that when you ask this, these 20 holdouts, what are you holding the line for? They give you very vague statements. They say, well, you know, it's to make this place work better. We're tired of the swamp. We're tired of the status quo. It's like they're on the campaign trail just screaming slogans that their consultants told them to say. Meanwhile, they're fundraising off of this. Everybody's getting fundraising emails from these people. And let me say this to the American public right now. Do not donate to these fundraising campaigns. They don't need the money for this. Okay, there's, there's no reason that their campaign needs money. Um, and it's, 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 it's actually just really immoral for them to be doing that. When Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House, they did away with the motion to vacate the chair. Did you know that? The Republicans were talking about, and the motion to vacate the chair is a big deal. We've seen it go down in the Texas House before, uh, you know, fights about removing the Speaker from office. Remember, the Speaker serves at the pleasure of the members, but there are rules governing how the Speaker's elected and then how that person can be turned out of office. When Speaker Tom Craddock was there uh, and Republican members, of the Texas House were upset with him. They tried to move to vacate the chair. It turned into, uh, you know, a big fight, sort of similar to what we saw in Washington. But this was years ago, uh, going back to 2005, 2007, when they were really getting tired of what they said was dictatorial rule uh, by Craddock. He, he actually uh, had fired the parliamentarians one evening. Uh, because they were, <laughs> this was pretty amazing. He fired the parliamentarians, they were gone, and then two Craddock loyalists walked onto the floor as the new uh, as the new parliamentarians. <laughs> it was really dramatic. Um, but So it's not like we've never seen stuff like this around here before, just for different reasons. Um, but Jeremy, uh, Crenshaw is going so far as to say that the people who drew all this uh, blood, really, from McCarthy, that they're immoral because not only are they asking for more power in exchange for their speaker votes, which is, again, sort of a quid pro quo um, and, and swampy, if you will. But he's, they're also making money off of it at the same time. They're, they're sending out emails that say, hey, we're fighting, quote, the swamp, and we need your 5 10 25 bucks. Well, and, and there's really important context on Dan Crenshaw in this whole thing. Dan Crenshaw has so much to win and lose in this whole fight, uh, depending on who you talk to, all right? It's like, but, like, you know, he's trying to get this Homeland Security chairman slot which would be a big deal for him. You know, like, you know, you'd have a Texan, you know, with oversight on basically border control policies and issues, mm -hmm. being able to bring, you know, Mayorkas and, you know, Biden administration people up for, you know, grilling about how they're handling the border. Crenshaw wants that role. But there was talk at one point in some of the, the scuttle in Washington was that, you know, these the renegades of the, the 20 holdouts were pushing to try to get a different chairman in that spot, somebody from the Freedom Caucus, you know, who would be more, you know, to their liking and maybe nudging Crenshaw out. And so there was kind of a, you know, you know, the, I, I talked to some people that thought Crenshaw is still going to with, you know, hang on and get this spot ultimately in the end. Who knows? We'll know in the next couple of weeks, you know, who's mm -hmm. going to be the chairman of that committee. But, you know, so that you can see like, not only does he have this irritation of this happening, but he has this like fight to kind of lock down this chairmanship spot that was pretty much out there. 
You know, it's like you can see, you know, when you're listening to his frustration, it's a double level frustration in there. You can see this guy's like, come on, can we get on with it? You know, who, who during this election cycle was saying, you know what, when we get a first, you know, when we you know, retake power, the first thing Republicans are going to do is spend a week, you know, complaining about Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> Nobody <Yeah>. said that. <laughs> they want to hold Biden and the Biden administration accountable for stuff, you know, that they think have been going on. And all they did this first week was only hold themselves up to the magnifying glass so everybody mm -hmm. can see all the fissures and divisions within the Republican Party. You know, they've said almost nothing about Joe Biden in this whole week, which I can't right. imagine is how anybody scripted it. Yeah, right. And, you know, the way that the rules have worked out, the, the package that they agreed to with McCarthy means that you could see more of these meltdowns and probably will see more of these meltdowns over the next two years. Because, as I mentioned, when Pelosi was there, taking the speaker out of the chair was just about impossible. Uh, now that McCarthy is there, he's empowered these members, guys like Matt Gates, guys like uh, you know Chip Roy, if he decides to come off the reservation, uh, to try to overthrow the speaker, and so you could have more fights like this going forward. Matt Gates, who really played everybody on this, it would be almost like years ago if the former speaker, then Speaker Joe Strauss, had said, "Hey, Jonathan Sticklin, who of course was uh, uh, you know sort of a rebel rouser from Tarrant County, if he had said, "Hey, here are the keys to the car." <laughs> If you want to run the Texas House, you know, some of these days, you go ahead and do that. Matt Gates, by the way, who you covered in uh, in Florida, when he was in the Florida legislature, was he just as substantive as now? Well, he's a legacy kid. And what I mean by that is his father had been a prominent Senate president uh, in, in mm. the Florida you know, Senate. And so, like, he came to power because of that, essentially. And, like, the only reason he got into the, you know, the Florida legislature was because the guy who had previously held the seat had gotten an indicted and had to be pushed out. And, you know, you know, Matt, you know, Matt Gates, with his father's name already pretty popular in that region, puts his last name up there and he wins the primary. As you can see, like even his route to get here is like so tenuous. You know, if the previous guy hadn't been indicted, I'm not sure any of this stuff just went down. <laughs> you know, all yeah. of this is just some hazy dream of a, a, a of an alternate reality that never happened. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, that whole uh, being a legacy candidate uh, that doesn't work as well anymore. Go ask George P. Bush, right? He was supposed to skate into the AG's office. I think the timing for Gates might have worked out just perfectly on that. Um, coming up next week on Tuesday, the Texas House of Representatives and the Texas Senate will gavel in for the next legislative session, the next regular session. Remember, in 2021, there was a regular session, then a special session and special session and special session and special session. I might have added one extra one. Anyway, there were lots of them. I like to say that every session is special, but the regular session will start on Tuesday. And here's the question. What's the biggest thing that they're going to have to deal with? at the Capitol. Well, we will get a better idea on Monday when the comptroller lays out his revenue estimate. And I'm going to lay out some things about the Texas budget here. It can be a little arcane, but it's very important. And you need to understand it because we're going to be talking about it a lot over the next five months. I was talking to my friend uh, Myra Arthur over at KSAT 12 uh, at, the, at the news operation there in San Antonio. And it can sound a little uh, self-indulgent or whatever to play audio of yourself on television. Jeremy, that's not what I'm doing. I, I'm, I'm actually doing something different, which is I'm kind of being lazy. I just don't want to say all this again. So, so here's what Myra Arthur and I were talking about uh, on KSAT. You know, we've seen sessions in the past where there seems to be one issue that mm -hmm. takes all the focus, really dominates the session. Do you think that it's shaping up to be something similar this time around? It may be. And, you know, um, when a married couple fights about money, it's never that there's too much of it. But at the Capitol, it's going to be the opposite. Like you said, there's going to be so much money in the bank that there will be big arguments about what to do with it exactly. What has been said about that? Well, the governor and the lieutenant governor have said that they would basically like to take about half of this record surplus that we're expected to see, uh, which is going to tie. If you add everything together between general revenue and what's in the state savings account, that's the economic stabilization fund, sometimes called the rainy day fund, it's approaching 45 or 50 
billion with a B dollars. Wow. Um, and so what what to do with that? Um, the uh, governor and lieutenant governor have said, hey, they want to spend at least about half of it on property tax relief. Now, there are some complications with that because it's a little arcane, but uh, the state has a, a constitutional spending limit. And so they'll have to figure out uh, how to navigate that. Um, but there's not a whole lot of meat on the bone as far as any real proposal to get that done so far. And Jeremy, you were working on a story about this, HoustonChronicle.com, uh, about what they might do on property taxes. I mean, Abbott and Patrick both saying, you know, let's spend half. And they're talking about the, the when, when I got into the rainy day fund stuff there, that's that's a little bit different thing. Uh, but they were talking about, Abbott was talking about at least half of general revenue surplus, right? So that would be, what, close to $14, 15000000000 billion, something like that. But the constitutional spending limit means that they could probably only do something like 12.5 or $13 billion on that, something like that. Um, but I can imagine that the House and Senate aren't going to agree exactly on what the proposal ought to be. This is what usually happens at, at the Texas legislature. You do have Republicans and Democrats fight with each other. We have seen that in spectacular, glorious fashion in the last 24 months, for sure. Um, but usually it comes down to House versus Senate and what they want to do. And I could imagine that if we ended up in special sessions, you know, plural, it would be about what to do with all this cash. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, how to break down the taxes. Like, how do you get tax relief to people? That's going to be a big portion of this entire legislative debate, right? It's like, and so you look at everything they've done on property taxes over the, let's say, the last five years. They did all this stuff where they kept telling us they were doing historic cuts and whatever. And, like, and yes, you know, the average homestead property in Bear County or in Harris County has actually gotten a tax cut this time. It's actually, it actually worked, but it's like, we're talking miniature amounts of money. We're talking like, you know, you might get $15 off your tax bill compared to last mm -hmm. year. You know, some yeah. people got, you know, 15 bucks more. It's like, so it's just, it's not a lot, you know, to kind of work off of. So they want to make that feel bigger. Right. And so w what are some of the avenues they can do? One, the one thing that keeps coming up is like sending more money to the schools. You know, if you send more state money to the schools, it mm -hmm. releases the pressure on the local school districts to raise property taxes and so you know you know expect to hear a lot of talk about an education buy down again mm -hmm. and to kind of add to it to kind of make it you know last longer than what we've seen so there's not a spike coming up another one mm -hmm. the lieutenant governor's talked a lot about is increasing that homestead exemption again and you know for people who have homestead exemptions that's the kind of the the quickest easiest way to kind of get tax relief to them but again that's only for homesteaded property so that eliminates all the renters you know everybody who's mm -hmm. paying rent your rent's going to keep going up because commercial right. properties don't get that break uh, that we're talking right. about they're going to have to keep paying a third way to account for that and, and you know i've you know I'm not sure how much weight is going to be on this, but already there are people pushing for maybe instead of doing a property tax, maybe you do a sales tax so more people feel relief. So if you cut the sales tax, you're helping more Texans ultimately in the end. So you're going to have some people mm -hmm. kind of pushing on that end. So you're going to have like there's a couple others too that I'll that I explain in the story that you know, I have running this weekend, and you know you'll be able to you know see in the paper. Uh, but you know certainly. This is going to be the discussion. This is going to be the end all be all. It's like there's going to be a tax cut coming. The question is, what will it look like and how will it get to you? Yeah, or some some tax bill. Um, I, I remember uh, in the 2019 session, uh, in the middle of the session, the lieutenant governor and the speaker and the governor all at once came out with a joint statement saying that they wanted to do a grand buy down of property taxes by increasing sales taxes. Oh yeah. And you remember this went over like a lead balloon with conservatives were fit to be tied. They said, we never voted for any of y'all saying that you were going to raise any tax. If you're going to do something like that, what they call a tax swap, you have to do, you have to expend a lot of political capital first. I mean, Governor Perry did this years ago. He actually went around the state uh, on a tour with uh, John Sharp, the former Democratic uh, comptroller, uh, who were, you know, their friends. And of course, uh, Sharp now at uh, the Texas A&M system as the chancellor. They went around trying to educate the business community and voters in different communities about what they were going to do. Like, hey, we're, we swear to you, this is, it's, a, it's a grand promise. We swear to you that if we raise this tax, then this tax over here will go down. The problem with that is when you say it, no one believes it. They think that, that, that the one tax is going to go up 
And the other one is either going to stay the same or continue to go up. And so it is interesting, Jeremy, that we're going into this legislative session with so much extra money and they could do something uh, in the way of another tax buy down like you talked about. By the way, on that, I was looking at the numbers from 2019 when they did that originally uh, under the current system with these current school funding formulas, which were rewritten uh, largely in 2019. That cost three billion dollars at that time. With population growth and growth in appraisals, that same buy-down now costs about $6 billion to offer the same kind of relief for the local school districts and their taxpayers. Um, and if they want to compress those taxes even more, they call it, the technical term is tax compression. If they want to do that even more, you know, they would go beyond that $6 billion and do $7 billion or $8 billion or $10 billion on flowing money down to the schools, which is what act, which would actually contain property taxes for all taxpayers, like you're talking about with renters and also business. Uh, think about the fact that those who own, you know, business guys who own big box stores or, you know, oil and gas interests that own big refineries, uh, you know, down on the coast, they don't get anything out of a homestead increase, uh, homestead uh, exemption increase. Uh, and so if all they do is the homestead exemption, you're going to have a lot of business guys unhappy with that. Yeah, the, the political simple way is the homestead, right? Because why do they want to do homestead so much? Because homeowners vote more than renters. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, homeowners vote more than a business because businesses aren't people. <laughs> and so like the, the 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 best thing for them to do politically is to just keep cutting the taxes of people over 65 who own a home. That's their voters. You know, they are they know they're winning over people who go to the ballot box. That's why they keep doing the homestead exemption. Mm -hmm. But again, if you wanted to make sure more people felt it, there are other ways like you're talking about that. That's, you know, you know, the buy down for school taxes, you know, really affects more people. You know, cutting sales taxes would affect more people doing something to help commercial properties that do rent or, you know, just rental properties in general would do more. You know, it's like, but is there a political payback for that that you know they would get that's equal to what they get from home homeowners i'm not sure if that there is so there's going to be this political weight out there that whole time if all they're worried about is future elections and future primaries you know they're going to want to do the quickest easiest thing which is like let's just raise the homestead exemption up there's it's right now it's like you know we, we keep seeing it move up dan patrick said he wants to move it to 60 to 65 you know thousand mm -hmm. dollars yeah it, you know at one point he even said he wants to get it to a hundred thousand before he leaves office so that would mean the first hundred thousand dollars on a property owner's you know property is tax-free you know before you even start getting into you know the dollars so here's where Republicans are in a box about all this. You are so on the mark by saying that the easiest political uh, win here is to do the increase in the homestead exemption. Um, before they can get to any of this, there's going to be a vote on the speaker, which Dade Phelan's going to win. I'll go ahead and make that prediction for you. Um, it, it, it's, it's, I'm really taking a big career risk with that. Um, but there's also going to be a vote on whether to have Democratic chairman in the Texas House. This is going to come up when they have their rules debate, which will either be the first week or the second week of the session. I, I haven't figured out exactly when that's going to happen. Usually it's right after the speaker vote, but they may delay it. We'll, we'll, we'll stay tuned and figure it out. Um, this has been sort of the big cause now for months from the Republican Party of Texas and from grassroots conservatives, for example. The Collin County Republican Party chairman uh, posted this YouTube video making the argument that, look, we have Republican leadership. And show, so, so, look, there should be no Democratic chairman in Austin. It doesn't make any sense to him. Since we have majority in the House, the people of Texas is expecting conservative Republican principled legislation passed by both chambers signed by the governor. They're not expecting Republicans who won the election to turn around and hand the power to Democrats. If that's the case, why did Texans elect Republicans in the first place, right? Now, that argument would make sense if you didn't know anything about how Texas government works. Let me go right back to the property tax issue. So if you want to get the easy political win of increasing the homestead exemption, that is a constitutional amendment, right? The reason that there's it, it becomes a ballot initiative, right? There's always this, you know, every time they've done this, there's a question on the ballot that says, are you in favor of increasing the homestead exemption to whatever number they've come up with? And Jeremy, of course, all homeowners are going to vote for that, yep. right? Yep. To even get it to the ballot, it has to get two-thirds support in the Texas House and the Texas Senate. And you can't get there with only Republican votes. So I would put it this way. If you deny Democrats a seat at the governing table, then that would deny Texans Dan Patrick's top priority, which is 
cutting people's property taxes. You can't do it without Democrats. Look, in the Texas Senate, there's a Democratic chairman, yep. right? Do you hear do you hear any of the grassroots conservatives talking about that? I have not I have not seen one of them say that Dan Patrick needs to push to get rid of John Whitmire as the chairman of the Criminal Justice Committee. Now why is that? I questioned the Republican chairman Matt Rinaldi of the state party. I questioned him on that. Are y'all you know, going to push Patrick as well? And he says, well, we don't, we don't have to push. And this was a, a little exchange on social media. Uh, uh, Rinaldi says, well, we don't have to push him because he gets conservative uh, priorities through the Texas Senate. And the rules have been changed under Dan Patrick to marginalize Democrats. But on this issue of property taxes, which is going to be, as you said, Jeremy, front and center in this legislative session, if they don't have Democrats on board, then they can't get it done as far as what they actually want to do. Um, now, I, I am told, it's, it's my understanding, uh, that the Republican leadership in the House is concerned about this vote uh, because, look, I think they want a – not a consensus government. Uh, they want a governing coalition. That's the way I would describe it. And they want to have Democrats in, uh, you know, in positions um, where they feel that they do have a seat at the table uh, because they want to be able to pass some of the things that I'm talking about, which would be politically advantageous for incumbents in both parties, yeah. right? And they maybe also want to, you know, get into some serious governing. So one way I would describe all this is that, and we saw this on display in 2021, we're not insulated from bitter partisanship, of course. We're not uh, insulated from very conservative politics, but we are, as long as there's power sharing in Texas government, we are insulated from the kind of meltdown that they have seen in Washington this week where you can't get any governing done because you're fighting about how governing is supposed to work. Yeah, it's like, and, and DC allows you to just shut out the other side, and you never need a two thirds vote for almost anything up there in order to you know to kind of move on. It's like, but here we still need that. It's like, and that is why like, it goes to my point about why would there be a sales tax discussion or you know discussions on helping renters because there's enough Democratic voices in you know the Senate who are going to say, wait a minute, we can't just give it to homeowners. It's like you know those folks already have the American dream. What about the people who are watching their rents go up, you know, $300 a month and are like expected to kind of continue on? That's why that discussion becomes more important because you need those people eventually to kind of help support you. You're going to need Royce West and John Whitmire and Boris Mil uh, Miles to kind of help you out at some point if you're going to start talking about taxes, mm -hmm. you know, and trying to get something to the voters. It's like, and they're going to want to, you know, make a statement about you know people in houston and dallas and austin who are getting who are feeling that rental push right now that is really kind of pushing a lot of communities to unaffordability it's like it's interesting even that collin county it's like you know you know where the highest property taxes in texas are it's actually collin county those folks are paying more on property taxes than even you know travis county mm -hmm. and so it's like and so at some point people are going to go say okay well maybe there's a way to kind of help you know bring down property taxes, not just for the homeowners, but also for the renters. Right. And if you look at this whole question of um, whether people want uh, all rule by one um, party or the other, people don't. I mean, look at what's going on in Washington, divided government. Look at what happened in the Ohio uh, House of Representatives. It was interesting uh, that they had a, far, a further right uh, candidate for speaker who didn't win because the uh, more centrist Republican uh, was able to team with Democrats and Republicans in the Ohio House and get elected that way. Uh, in the Pennsylvania legislature, in their House of Representatives, this was remarkable. I, th I think the Republicans have a one vote uh, advantage there. Uh, and so they came up with a deal for a coalition government where the speaker is not of either party. The speaker is an independent speaker to preside over the Republicans and the Democrats. So, so all over the country, this is kind of starting to happen, that people want to see, you know, everyone have a seat at the table because of our diverse communities and diverse viewpoints. Um, who is coming to town this weekend? Uh, it's the president, Joe Biden. He's going to the border. He's going to the border, Jeremy. How many times have we heard he doesn't go to the border? He doesn't go to the border. He doesn't go to the border. He never goes to the wide open border. And yet there he is 
in El Paso right after announcing a couple of things about immigration, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is kind of a, you know, it's like you wondered when it would happen. You know, it's like it's after the midterm and before we go into the presidential cycle. Hmm. Do you think there's politics involved in here? You know, rest assured there's absolutely politics involved here. You know, is Joe Biden going to be saying anything that kind of wins over Republicans? Probably not. You know, it's no. like, you know, you already heard it. You know, people are complaining. Why did it take them so long? But this is all about 2024. This is all about looking ahead for the future presidential election and trying to win over those independent, you know, Republican independent Democratic voters in places like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. That could cost Joe Biden a, an election down the road as they start talking about immigration. So he has to start looking like he cares and he's worried about this too. And so that's why he's coming to El Paso. He's going to see firsthand what's going on so you can chill out some of that, you know, complaining about him not having even been to the border. They'll have to attack mm-hmm. him on something else, which they'll find ways. <laughs> it's not like they're not like you're going to hear Ted Cruz and John Cornyn and, you know, Greg Abbott say, OK, he's went to the border. We'll chill out now. That's not happening. <laughs> well, it, you know, when you're practicing the politics of grievance, you've always done the wrong thing. It's like when uh, it's like when a, a couple that's getting divorced is having a fight. It's the the responses from the one spouse or the other, uh, whatever the whatever they do, the, the complaint from the other is tailor made for what they just did. Even even if <laughs> even if they completely change their position to what the other spouse wanted originally, they'll, they'll say, "Oh, well, now you agree." Yeah. And, and and you know, and the same thing with this. Um, it was uh, it was. I think it was Governor Abbott on Fox News Channel saying, uh, well, it, it took him so long. Why did it take him so long? Abbott had been saying, come to the border, come to the border. If we were talking about people acting in good faith, he would say, that's great. In fact, maybe I'll go meet him at the border and explain to him what's going on. Instead, Abbott, almost superhero-like, flies over the Texas-Mexico border. Looks like some migrants right there. The people walking single file. The vehicle they're going to is a Border Patrol vehicle. Oh, man, that is good theater. Uh, he was on ABC News with Martha Raddatz, a reporter who asked him something that, Jeremy, I don't think he would necessarily be asked on his favorite shows to appear on on Fox News Channel. You talk about the border wall. You talk about open borders. I don't think I've ever heard President Biden say, we have an open border. Come on over. But people I have heard say it for you our former President Trump, or Ron DeSantis, that message reverberates in Mexico and beyond. So they do get the message that it is an open border, and smugglers use all those kinds of statements. It was, it was known from the time that Joe Biden got elected that Joe Biden supported open borders. Uh, it is known uh, by the cartels who have sophisticated information whether or not the Biden administration is going to enforce the immigration laws or not is known across the world, but most importantly, known among the cartels. And how do you play into that? What can you do better? Uh, so we have every level of government doing everything we can to prevent people from coming into the country illegally or repelling them or arresting them and putting them behind bars. Certainly nothing along the lines of a comprehensive immigration strategy. Instead, it's law enforcement only. Now, she's the, quote, liberal media. I expect her to kind of press him about this stuff. But what about Tucker Carlson on Fox News Channel? He Can he be considered? I'm asking in good faith, Jeremy. Can Tucker Carlson be considered the liberal media? Of course. No, no, of course not. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> you say, of, cor- of course, dot, 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 not. Um, Carlson wanted to know why, yeah, it's a complete opposite. Carlson wanted to know why Abbott doesn't just go even further and completely shut the border down. Again, we, we've deployed up to 10,000 of them. Uh, the only reason why it would not be more, you got to understand this also, uh, and that is there are some who retire every single month. Uh, some who are no, I, uh, I get it. Re- but, but, but why don't, service, why not, why not just say I'm the governor of Texas? More every single we're month. the greatest state in America. Every Texan I know, including relatives of mine, they all think Texas is the best. You're the governor. Why don't you just say any person with military and law enforcement experience can join up? We are starting our own force. It's volunteer, or just go to Midland, Dallas, and Houston and get your donors to fund it. They would. I'd send you money. Everyone send you money, and we're going to stop this on behalf of the state of Texas and the United States. You could do that. Biden people would back down in the face of that determination. Why not? Uh, Tucker, actually, we, we onboard uh, new members every single month. 
we, we do go through both that recruiting process as well as people signing up. They onboard, they go through the training process, they get ready for deployment, and then we deploy them. So we are constantly involved uh, in adding to uh, those who can serve us on the border. And they get special training that is different what they have to do in the state of Texas compared to what they may do in Afghanistan. Do you see this as a hair on fire emergency that's more important than anything they would have done in Afghanistan or Ukraine or any other country around the world? Do you think this is the most important thing those guys should be, could so, be doing? Tucker, I have made that point to the United States Congress uh, asking for more resources so that we can better defend our border. I would say that was the dumbest thing I've ever heard Tucker Carlson ask, but I don't watch the show often enough to really have a good frame of reference. I'm, I'm not an expert on that. It's interesting as somebody who covers Abbott, listen to him um, avoid Tucker Carlson's questions <laughs> because he certainly wasn't answering in almost any of that. Um, he's taken heat here from all sides on his policy on the border. But here in Texas, Jeremy, it has absolutely worked for him politically, right? I mean, you know, just hammering the border all the time has been the magic sauce. I mean, if they don't get it with the East Coast liberal and conservative media, if they don't understand it, they don't understand Texas because around here, uh, when you poll Republican primary voters and you say, hey, is Texas spending too little, just the right amount or too much on the border? They will always say, GOP voters will always say the state needs to spend more and more and more. I don't know what the policy prescription or the exact number is going to be in this legislative session or what the legislature will approve when it comes to Operation Lone Star and those uh, you know ongoing operations. Um, I can tell you that in my conversations with Republicans privately, there is they'll, they'll say, you know, that's really, really expensive down there on the border. And I'm not really sure what we're getting for it. But at the same time, there's a recognition that this is what their voters want. Yeah, absolutely. And not just their voters, but also those independent voters. You know, you know who knows that is Beto O'Rourke. You know, like his campaign knows like like you can roll out this thoughtful you know, a program for dealing with immigration from El Paso, a border community that gets it. You know, like, yeah, we understand that, but people still want the stunt. People, you know, like you can call what Abbott's doing a stunt, but it was a popular stunt, it turns out. You know, whether it be busing the migrants, whether it be putting troops on the border, you know, the populace, not just the Republican base, but the independents kind of were okay with that. You know, it's like, and so it just kind of puts Democrats in this perpetually difficult cycle in talking about immigration. They just like struggle to talk about it because if you go too far you know, to the right, the left will kill you. If you go too left, obviously the people in the middle kill you. And so there's kind of a no-win situation happening for you know Democrats on this issue. No matter what Joe Biden says on this, it's not going to change the overall calculus of this. You know, So the Democrats try to like not talk about it as much as they probably should about the solutions that they have. Uh, and so what does that ha what happens? The Republicans have no real will to actually fix the ultimate problem because this issue is so good politically for them. They can keep hitting this issue and they win every single time. Why would you want this issue to go away? You would want this to continue. You want the images of people coming to the border and continue to, you know, more troops, more, you know, it's like, Keep fighting that. You know the rhetoric is actually better for them than mm -hmm. the actual solution, you know, which course. is a terrible incentive, right? You know, the, there's no incentive for Republicans to say, okay, let's just fix this finally. <laughs> let's find you know some solution with Democrats and kind of work this thing out because we all kind of like you've heard the solution in the framework. You know, it's like there's mm -hmm. a way to kind of get there, but I don't think it's you know you know Democrats are, are worried about the politics of it and the republicans don't want the politics to go away because again it's why they have control of the united states house of representatives right now i'm willing to go on record to say that for sure it's like if not for the immigration and the border issue i think democrats are still in control of the u.s house of representatives it's that big of an issue if you look at even in the u.s senate races in other states you know Raphael warnock and, you know, Mark Kelly, they were putting pressure, you know, he's a senator from Arizona. Uh, they were putting pressure on the Biden administration to do more on the border because they, 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 they're getting the same message from the independent voters. We have to act tougher on this border, you know, even if it's against some Democratic principles, you know, that people are kind of struggling with. Because remember what we're talking about here, we're talking about legal asylum seekers and the Biden administration talking about how to keep them from coming to the border. 
It's like that is really anti-democratic policy in its heart, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's like legal asylum seekers are going to be turned away in record numbers by the Biden administration. That's not the headline they want, but that is what the, you know is really in actuality happening. Will he get anything from it? I'm not so sure. It's like politically, there's like it's not like Fox News and you know Tucker Carlson in his you know you know great studio is going to say you know Joe Biden's finally figured this out. We appreciate him turning back these legal asylum seekers because they're scary to us. <laughs> it's like that's not going to happen. You know they're you know they're going to say it's not enough. He's not doing much. He, yeah, sure he went to El Paso. Why didn't he go to McAllen? Why didn't he go to Brownsville? Why didn't he go to Laredo? It's like it, it's just going to continue the perpetual cycle of you know. Republicans not really being in a position to accept anything from Democrats and Democrats afraid to, you know, just spell out what they want. Well, when you have a grand deal on a huge issue, um, there's going to be blowback and a political price to be paid. One um, one uh, example I would give a huge one would be the fact that Democrats uh, for more than a half century, the holy grail for Democrats was some sort of health care reform. And they worked on that issue, campaigned on that issue was a good issue for them in campaigns, uh, you know, something that you could raise money on and get people fired up and talk about doing more for people who don't have enough and can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps, the idea that healthcare should be universal and is a human right and all that great campaign rhetoric for decades. And what happened when President Obama made that the priority when there was a Democratic White House and Democratic Congress, the House and Senate, they passed the Affordable Care Act. They, uh, you know, uh, Harry Reid uh, as the leader of the Senate, the late uh, the late Reed, uh, Harry Reid, um, they they maneuvered that through the Senate um, in a way that you don't see uh, Democrats often describe this way, that they muscled it through the Senate, that they, they did it with no Republican votes. We're going to, you know, Katie barred the door. We're getting this done. And I remember uh, watching uh, the funeral for Leader Reed uh, after he passed away uh, in it was in Las Vegas in Nevada, uh, where, where Reed is from. And they had the stars of the Democratic Party there. President Obama was there. President Clinton was there. Secretary Clinton, I think, was there. Um, all, you know, uh, all of these uh, folks, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi, all of the people who are just the royalty of the Democratic Party there to remember Reed. And President Obama was saying that, you know, when we were doing health care, we were doing that deal. Um, Leader Reed would come to him and say, hey, you know, this bill, it doesn't quite look the way that you originally proposed it, Mr. President, because I'm trying to get this through the Senate. I have to make changes to it to get it through the Senate. And what President Obama said was, and he he said that, that Leader Reed said it this way to him, Mr. President, maybe you even know more about this issue than I do. Because this is your key issue, your Senate, your your signature issue. But I know the Senate. I know how to do this. And they got it done, passed it. What happened in the next elections after that? Democrats got wiped out in 2010. Democrats who had nothing to do with that. Even Democrats who would say, I didn't agree with what they did in Washington, got killed on that issue. There were Democrats uh, losing in in the Montrose in Houston. You know, Sarah Davis won her seat that year uh, against uh, against the Democrat. The, you had um, uh, that'd be Ellen Cohen, who's uh, was also on city council in Houston. Um, kind of unbelievable that in some of these neighborhoods that had been Democratic, you had Republicans winning it, just winning for free, all over the place. Now, a big difference, though. People will say, Scott, healthcare and immigration are different. Of course, they are. In 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 the issue of immigration, it has always been the case that this country is built by immigrants. Right. It has. I mean, what's on the Statue of Liberty is a welcome. It's it's like the bat signal for immigrants. Come here. We want you here. Right. Then who builds the railroads? The immigrants who builds the the cities? The immigrants who still builds the the skyline here in Austin? Who's building that? Let me tell you something. There's no way if you drive by any of the work sites in wherever you're listening to us, Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, drive by those work sites, and I'd like you to guess how many people on site are legal immigrants. It's always the immigrants who are building this country. And here's the deal. When it comes to some kind of immigration reform, there's almost no immediate political benefit to it. You are, you as a Democrat or as a business-minded Republican who would argue for legal status for those people, which wouldn't even include the right to vote. Remember, anytime this comes up, they say, we're not going to make them citizens or anything and let them vote. And that's Democrats and Republicans will say that, right? How is it politically advantageous to you 
to try to argue on behalf of people who can't vote. Yeah. It's not, right? It's, it, it, it's a horrible issue politically for anybody who wants to make uh, you know, progress on the issue. For those who want to demagogue on it, it's a perfect issue because they know it, that nothing's ever going to happen with it. It's an issue that they can continue to flog people about forever because listen to what Governor Abbott said in his interview with Martha Raddatz. He said, we are trying to not only remove these people, but put them in behind bars, put them in jail. And that's where not just the base of the Republican Party is, but as you said, there's a lot of independents who feel that way, too, that they don't like that all these quote-unquote illegals are coming in here. And so it's pandering, pandering, pandering uh, to, 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 people, to, peop, to a lot of people who probably have those folks mow their lawn, clean their house, babysit their kids, and everything like that. Now, if you ever say, like, oh, hey, that person is undocumented. I, had, I remember this in a neighborhood in Houston years ago. There was uh, there was a man who was a truck driver next to a, a guy that I knew, and this truck driver was not legally in the country, but nobody in the neighborhood knew that. This was one in one of the uh, newer subdivisions out in the Cypher area, and the guy was discovered as undocumented uh, through one of the ICE uh, audits uh, of the company where he was working. He was deported, and everybody in the neighborhood was like, I can't believe it. He seemed like such a nice guy. He is a nice guy. Right. That has nothing to do with it. The people would say it's one of those things where uh, it's just the people that, you know, are OK. Right. But it's everybody else who's a problem. It's 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 it 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 is the it is the most maddening thing, and I've watched it for twenty years. And, and look how much further right it keeps going. You know, it's like you know, it wasn't very long ago that you know there was kind of an exception in the debate to talk about Cubans fleeing the Castro regime and even Venezuelans, you know, you know, fleeing Maduro. It's like there was a point where like you know, even Republicans were like, yeah, we need to you know give these people a way to get here. But now, what? Look at what we're talking about. We're talking about. Biden saying he's going to put more restrictions on legal immigrants coming from Cuba and Venezuela and Republicans saying it's not enough. <laughs> do more. It's like we're to the point where it's like, well, what, what what do you want us to do? You know, it's like we used to be like this is where you, you know, we wanted Cubans to come here. We wanted Venezuelans to be able to escape you know, the political oppression they were facing. And now we don't even want to give those people a chance to apply. It's like so the discussion you can see like I'm not sure how to kind of even get there. It's like and it's, it's, I know there's going to be people out there already. Biden's hearing it from some you know immigration advocates who are saying he's going too far right now. It's like by him you know by playing the game with the Republicans to say look we're going right. to put restrictions on Cubans fleeing dictatorships to come in, to even apply for immigration. We're going to make you do it on a phone from. You know, where Santiago, you know, it's like, uh, right. it's like, well, well, well how, how does that work? You know, <laughs> I'm just not sure. So it's, it's the whole the whole debate is so off kilter right now. And I'm just not sure how we kind of get to some place of normalcy where we can separate asylum seekers, you know, you know, from everybody else, even in discussion. We used to be able to even do that. We can't even do that now. Now it's like everybody's just right. illegal. It's like, no, 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 no. They're, they're legal asylum seekers we're talking about here. Yeah. The closest thing we ever came in, in my time of covering politics, the closest thing we ever came was a governor from Texas being elected president. Yep. And it was George W. Bush. And, and, and think about how, how much the politics have changed on it. George W. Bush, who ran as the, quote, compassionate conservative. Right. His quote on immigration, the, the one that everybody remembers, is that family values don't end at the Rio Grande. He talked about the people who would come in from Mexico and come in from other countries, like I said, are the people who built the state, built this country. And when he, uh, after the 2006 election, where Republicans got their asses kicked and they had a Democratic Congress with a Republican president, I remember it being described as a window of opportunity on the immigration issue. They still couldn't get it done then. And I've argued ever since that the really the beginnings of all of this uh, Tea Party stuff and MAGA stuff, the Trump stuff, it came from that era when Bush tried to do the deal on immigration. And remember, the members of Congress from his own party turned on him, yeah. right? And they said that they would they would say, "Well, we don't really have a problem personally with President Bush, but this is this is amnesty quote amnesty for illegals. This is this is uh, you know letting the illegals run amok is the way they would talk about it. And all this anger that was directed at President Bush came from Republicans. Uh, Governor Perry at the time in his 06 and uh, 2010 reelection efforts, 
He made border security and turning back undocumented immigrants from the Rio, the Rio Grande. He made that uh, one of his key campaign messages. And, we, and we're looking now at – and I think this is why it's even – maybe even worse now uh, or, or more divisive or however you want to describe it. Um, at that time, in 05, 06, 07, there were all of these folks who were sort of glomming onto that as the thing that they should do that was politically advantageous to you know for them, and that, that's still happening. But this is generational. Now you have a lot of people in office who grew up listening to that, yep. right? They grew up listening to that. And so what's the next step? If they grew up listening to that, then the next step that you take is go and build an actual wall on the border. Go and put the entire law enforcement apparatus of the state of Texas on the border. Put gunboats down there. Have the governor flying overhead in a in a helicopter and personally identifying where, you know, five immigrants or six immigrants or ten immigrants are coming in, you know, at any one time uh, and try to make sort of uh, uh, superheroes out of these people who are trying to turn back the, the quote unquote threat of illegal immigration. Yeah, it's like, well, and, and, and as you can see, it's like, because there's a point where it's like, I know I was talking to Republicans who say, of course, you can't build a wall. It's like, you know, the people who say you can build a wall even, it's just like, I, I want all of them to walk the length of the U.S. border. I want them to, you know, you know walk the 1,200 miles it takes to get from Brownsville to El Paso, that they can understand how freaking big this thing is. It's like, it, there's, there is no simple answer to this stuff, you know, but there's a lot of simple politics to be played. And quite honestly, as long as it keeps working for Republicans, you know, you know, again, I, I, you might even be able to argue Donald Trump won the presidency because of saying he wanted to build a wall where you really can't build a wall, <laughs> you know, it's like, yet he still did it, you know, and he won. And, you know, he's still amongst us, <laughs> as we saw in the speaker's race, you know, on the floor mm -hmm. of the, you know, during that debate, if you saw it at one point, Marjorie Taylor Greene holds up a yeah. phone with Donald Trump having called her and trying to give it to some of the holdouts to say, see, he wants you to flip it over. You literally had Donald Trump <laughs> coming, calling on the floor of the house in the last minutes of that whole debate. Ugh, never Unbelievable. Um, one other thing that may or may not come up during the legislative session that starts next week. And of course, we'll have complete coverage of the whole thing for you at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we'll recap the first week of the legislative session next week uh, here on the show. Um, I have been saying, and you've been reporting on some of this, Jeremy, I've been saying, hey, all y'all who are so excited about legalized gambling coming to Texas, it's probably not happening. That's my sense. Right um, now, you, of course, reported that the governor had opened the door just, quote, just a crack. That was, I think, your headline. It was just just open a little bit for some form of uh, casino gambling. Uh, KXAN reporter Ryan Chandler here in Austin talked to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who said, and listen to his wording on this. Listen closely, because I know there's criticism. So people will say, oh, Dan has a very, before I, before we hear from Dan, let me just say this. You know, and I've said this before, but. There are some newbies on the show, I know. I'm glad, always glad to have new listeners. Um, Dan Patrick is such a skilled orator. He's so good at talking. Um, he's like a jazz musician who can play a series of notes and make you hear notes that he didn't play. Okay? L listen to what he says here. Uh, when he's asked about whether gambling, legalized gambling, is going anywhere in this legislative session. I haven't had anyone mention it to me that they're interested in doing anything. Doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean uh, that in a session things don't change, but I don't see any movement on that right now. Um, a lot of talk out there, but I don't see any movement on it. You know, in Vegas, they say the House always wins. In Austin, at least on this issue, it might be the Senate that wins. Oh, come on, Ryan Chandler. That, <laughs> he's being a little too cute with that. I don't know that it's going to go anywhere in the House either. Uh, but the fact is that you have a lot of office holders in Texas who have taken a lot of money, including Patrick and Governor Abbott. They've taken a lot of money from gambling interests. Um, but as you have pointed out through your reporting, Jeremy, just because they take money from these interests, that doesn't mean that the thing that those folks want, the, the, the contributors, uh, just because they give money doesn't mean that they're going to get 
legislation on the thing that is important to them. In fact, there are lots of times where that is the case. Well, and, and going to your point on Patrick, you know, listen to what he didn't – he never says in that whole clip or any time that I've ever heard him saying he's against the idea of expanded games. That's right. He just mm-hmm. tells you he doesn't think he has the votes and he hasn't you know, mm-hmm. seen legislation for it. You know, it's like that's what – you know, it's, it's very similar to kind of how he handled the Constitution constitutional carry issue he never said he was for or against it he just would always report back he didn't think he had the vote for it until ultimately they did and then things change so like you know i'll counter you here on this where it's like like, it's like he kind of says it's a long session you know if pressure builds you know i could see him going another way it's a big Mm -hmm. if you know it's like i I think you know uh, it takes years for this kind of pressure to build and you know, it took us forever to just get the lottery here. It's like, you know, people, you know, who come to Texas will you know, be stunned to know we didn't get the lottery until 91. It's like it took mm-hmm. forever for us to even be able to say, OK, we'll allow Mega Ball to come in here. <laughs> but like, you know, but it took, you know, every other state was already doing it by the time we jumped into it. Oh, sure. Yeah. It was in uh, 2013, 10 years ago, uh, that the Texas Senate held a hearing on a bill to legalize casinos. That was the first time that a bill on that had ever been heard in the Texas Senate, yeah. even even had a hearing on it. And it didn't go – ended up you – know, I don't think it even made its way out of the committee. Obviously, did not become Texas law. Uh, there are big challenges for this. Number one, it's the wrong time to be asking legislators for uh, casinos or any expanded gambling if you're going to try to make the argument that they need more money. They don't, Correct. right? They they just don't need more money. And in fact, I think it was in the last legislative session. I, I know it was. It, uh, Speaker Phelan had said, if you're going to make the argument based on revenue, it's not a good argument because we're not really hurting that much for money around here right now. And it, things are even better on that front this time around. The other thing, of course, is that any expansion of gambling in Texas is a constitutional amendment. So you would need two thirds of both the House and Senate. And so Patrick has said in some other interviews, hey, uh, look, if we see a big groundswell of support among Republicans for this, because I think most Democrats are already there uh, on, on, you know, approving something like this. But if you see Republicans, you know, en masse suddenly saying, oh, yeah, we want to have casino gambling. Let's do it. And the other thing, um, I think, that just to add some perspective on the constitutional carry issue, which you're right, that that sort of shifted as well. And the way Patrick was talking about it shifted and, and what happened uh, ended up not being exactly what he had kind of laid out at the beginning of the session. But constitutional carry, that is something that that is just a almost a litmus test thing in a Republican primary, and whether you support casinos or not isn't true, accurate, right? Okay, so that's a pretty good first show for twenty twenty three. I think. Yeah, I'm I'm happy with it. Yeah, I hope it felt like a hug to Thumbs those up. readers you were trying to or the listeners you were trying <laughs> to was, hug earlier. <laughs> I'm just I'm trying I'm trying to make everybody know how much I miss them. If it's your favorite show, you know it is. You should be a subscriber. What are you doing with your life? Click, click that click the subscribe button on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Pod, you know, Podcasts, Spotify, all of them. However, you listen to your favorite podcasts, you can judge me for my tired tongue. Uh, subscribe at quorumreport.com, HoustonChronicle.com, and we will talk to you next time. <laughs>